2010 Arts and Science Week keynote address was given by a noted historian and author, Ronald Eller. An associate professor in the Department of History, Eller's talk was titled, Stereotypes and Inequalities, Hillbillies, Horses, and Hoops. Listen in on this compelling look at perceptions of bluegrass in Kentucky. Kentucky has certainly drawn its share of attention lately from the news media. Much of this attention has been less than fault, uh, flattering and we have responded by accusing these outside commentators of stereotyping the Commonwealth. During the recent NCAA men's basketball tournament, we screamed foul when national journalists cast the UK Cornell game as a contrast between the smart white boys from Cornell and the dumb black boys from Kentucky. From our perspective, it was a clear example of stereotypes about race and region. Stereotypes that were not only inaccurate, but insulting. There have been other recent offenses. Last year, one national survey found that not only was per capita income in eastern Kentucky among the lowest in the United States, but people there were unhappy about it. Go figure. Hazard was identified by the Dr. Oz show as the most unhappy city in the United States. And then there was the ABC News 2020 program by Diane Sawyer last year, which rekindled old stereotypes about Appalachia and about her native state, Kentucky, but also revealed the harsh truth about poverty and drug abuse in our communities. These images are not new. Journalists for more than a century have hoped to shock their readers with images of poverty in Kentucky's Appalachia by pointing to the worst conditions and recounting the most emotional stories of personal tragedy in order to make their point. Shock journalism, of course, often utilizes stereotypes and paints entire regions and communities of people with unfair and inaccurate generalizations. Appalachia and Kentucky have certainly suffered an inordinate share of this kind of stereotyping, and we have understandably become defensive. This was clearly the case following the 2020 program, A Hidden America, The Children of the Mountains. The program drew almost 11 million viewers, the most for any 2020 program since 2003, and elicited more than 2,000 responses many critical of the images that it drew of the Commonwealth. Others were disappointed that it did not delve more deeply into the causes of the problems or illuminate some of the programs working to address them. Universally, critics believed that we had been stereotyped again. Stereotypes can be positive images too, often the ones that we create about ourselves are more romantic than accurate statements of our past, or even who we are in the present. Often, they hide the reality of our history and our culture. The lost cause myth created by white Southerners after the Civil War is one example. 
as is much of the myth of the horse and the bluegrass. As one of my recent graduate students' dissertations has documented, much of the imagery associated with the southern bluegrass horse industry is constructed myth created to boost the sale of horses and land to outsiders at the turn of the 20th century. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. Stereotypes persist because they are useful, not because they are accurate. They have political power. Many stereotypes often mask some self-interest. They are used by those with power to justify some action, some exploitation, toward those who have little power. The origins of myths about African inferiority and white supremacy, for example, lay in white struggles with identity and, with, and were utilized to justify racial slavery. In a similar way, the origins of what we call the idea of Appalachia, those stereotypes and images that we all are familiar with about the region, the origins of the idea of Appalachia lay in the turn of the century efforts, turn of the 20th century efforts by urban Americans to define their own emerging modern civilization. They created stereotypes that set fellow Americans in the mountains off as some other America. Stereotypes that helped to justify exploitation of the land and people of Appalachia for private profit and for the benefit of the rest of the nation. In modern times, those same images have been used to blame the persistent poverty of Appalachia on the land and on the culture of the people of the region, rather than on the basic social injustices and structural inequalities in the economic and political system. Stereotypes allow us to blame the victim, to distance ourselves from the social problems and inequalities that cause their conditions. Even the positive stereotypes that we create about ourselves can serve to distance us from those we exclude from our own group. Pride in our heritage and history, even in a falsely constructed history, can also lead us to ignore the negatives in our culture and the injustices around us. Stereotypes can be used by local elites to displace responsibility for the problems and inequalities in our own communities. It's easier and more convenient to blame outsiders for creating negative stereotypes about us than to address the realities of persistent poverty and the continued exploitation of the land and the people. My grandfather was a mountain preacher, and it seems to me that I remember him saying something about not being critical of the speck in your neighbor's eye while ignoring the beam in your own. I want to show just a little bit of the promotional clip that was uh, prepared for the program I'm talking about here, the uh, Diane Sawyer 2020 program. Uh, Diane asked me to come up to um, New York, flew me up to New York, and I met with her for a couple of hours, did an uh, interview with her, very little of what I had to say 
um, ended up in the documentary, uh, and I can speak to why that was in, uh, a little bit later. But I want to say some things about this documentary and give you a little idea, those of you who didn't see it, as to what it was about. I can get the technology to work. Here we Up in the mountains of Appalachia, every child can sing a song, often a song of Jesus. Twelve-year-old Courtney, her sister, eleven-year-old Mary, tell us a secret about their mom. Everyone's our mom used to be hooked on drugs. And we don't like what we get. Courtney says she used to lock herself in the bathroom and cry when her mom got high. They bounced from place to place and are grateful they now have a place to sleep. Her grandparents, where her two uncles, one aunt, three sisters, and her mom's boyfriend, Bill, also live. There's 12 people in this apartment. Also, we can barely afford food. Whenever her food stamps are all gone, we, we run out of food. We don't have bread, we don't have meat. Last time we was out of food, all the time we had in our fridge was butter and ranch. Well, I thought people, we can't afford food after food after food. Fruits and vegetables, a rare luxury because of the expense. Their mother's food stamps are $523 a month. Milk runs out fast. Courtney's uncle, called Uncle Duck, puts Pepsi in two-year-old Sable sippy cup. Courtney is one of those children whose face seems to reach right back across the centuries to the famous portraits by Walker Evans, Doris Allman, Earl Palmer, where worry and wariness are in the faces of the children, and the adults are ravaged by exhaustion, defeat. Angel, Courtney's mother, is 30 years old, and she says she's trying to stay off drugs and give her children the future they want, so before dawn, she gets them on the 615 school bus. Then she and her boyfriend Bill start the track to the welfare-mandated GED class in the center of town. The walk, eight miles, one way. It takes nearly two hours. The only thing I do is try to salvage what little bit I can. With a GED, Angel says maybe she could get a job, get off welfare, and have a life like those down the mountain. That's a little little clip of uh, of an hour program. We don't know whether this latest expose that we saw just part of there has had any lasting impact upon the lives of the four young people who were profiled in Sawyer's 2020 piece on the hidden America. It stirred much debate and reaction last year and in that regard, it has already been an unqualified success. I just learned the other day that uh, uh, the documentary actually received the Peabody Award for Excellence in Journalism this year. I've not seen a more visceral response inside and outside the region, however, to any documentary in more than three decades. It remains to be seen whether or not the negative reaction or the documentary itself can produce action to address the deeper problems of the region. Action both from organizations and government agencies outside of the mountains and action from within the region itself. The program placed Appalachia back on the popular agenda again.
And I would point out that the recent tragedy on Monday in, uh, near my home in southern West Virginia uh, will do that again. And you'll, be, you'll see a lot of attention in the media about Appalachia over the next few days. Whether we are able to respond differently than we have responded in the past to these documentaries is yet to be determined. That part is up to us. But to turn to the disappointing images of the 2020 program, excuse me, but to turn the disappointing images of the 2020 program into a positive response, to make something good out of something bad, we must move beyond the stereotypes and beyond our defensive reaction to them. One of the most common reactions, of course, throughout the region and in much of the media here in Lexington was, this isn't us. These are false images, and they're stereotyping us again. The problem with stereotypes is not whether they are true or false, but what reality they hide and how the stereotypes narrow our vision of that reality. Stereotypes reveal deeply seated political assumptions, assumptions that have powerful implications in the arena of our public policy. The stereotypes about Appalachia, the assumptions that we all make about Appalachia, have prevented us from understanding that the problems in the mountains are not different from those of the larger society but are in fact intertwined with the challenges facing the nation as a whole, and one might add the world. Appalachia is not the other America. There are no easy solutions to poverty and inequality in Appalachia unless we confront some of the fundamental challenges facing our larger society today. Problems of building a sustainable economy, assuring social equity, protecting the land and the environment, valuing family and community, respecting diversity, acknowledging civic and individual responsibility, and placing people over profits. In that respect, we are all Appalachians, and the hidden America is around us all. In this same way, stereotypes about the bluegrass ignore the historical truth that meant juleps and fast horses were not central to the lifestyle of most Kentuckians. And the horse industry itself rose on the tide of Jim Crow segregation and the exclusion of African Americans from opportunities within this new industry in the Commonwealth. Modern stereotypes of academically challenged black athletes who entertain us briefly on their way to, be, to the big show, obscures the intellectual integrity of these men. But they also obscure the reality that one-third of black males born in 2001 can expect to spend some time in prison over the course of their lifetime because of persistent racism and social inequalities in our society. What the idea of Appalachia has done is to hide the way that change has come to the mountains in its history, and in so doing to hide the fundamental inequalities and false assumptions about the way we have defined progress 
and defined development in America over the past century. It has hidden the fact that we have used the resources of Appalachia to fuel a lifestyle that is based on gluttony, irresponsibility, and the absence of concern for others. We have built a society dependent upon energy, specifically electricity, the production of which is the result of the extraction of coal at any expense to the land and to the people who produce it, and to those who live with its environmental consequences. We have followed the dreams of some Americans and smothered the hopes of others. We have assumed that education and technology would somehow solve all of our problems. We have assumed that an urban lifestyle should be emulated by everyone. That growth was always good and more was always better. We have assumed that part of our country could be surrendered as a sacrifice area in order to sustain the prosperity and comfort of other parts of the country. And we have assumed that markets were always fair and that life was a competition in which the fittest would survive. Finally, we have assumed that the slices of the national pie need not be redistributed if we just keep making the size of the pie bigger. Those people whom we choose not to invite to the national barbecue, we abandon to reservations, ghettos, rural places in the Delta, and the remote hollows of Eastern Kentucky. But the energy crisis, the challenges of global warming, the crash of financial markets, the rise of world terrorism, the collapse of the economy may have forced us recently to reconsider some of these assumptions. We live in a time of crisis and we live in a time of opportunity. Since World War II, we have believed that consumption, concentration, and technology would produce the good life. When the nation rediscovered poverty in Appalachia in the 1960s, we launched a war on poverty. We created a special federal agency, the Appalachian Regional Commission, designed to make Appalachia look just like the rest of the country. Rather than address the structural problems that have created the persistent inequalities in Appalachia, problems like absentee land ownership, political corruption, inadequate taxation, single industry economy, environmental destruction, inappropriate land use, and I could go on, we attempted to address the poverty of things in the mountains and used our public resources primarily to build roads, industrial parks, consolidated schools, centralized health services, and other infrastructure to make Appalachia look modern. Most of those resources have flowed to the towns, to a few towns, and to a few selected growth centers in the region and to the benefit of a new middle class that has developed to support the education, health, and government services that have concentrated there in those growth, excuse me, growth centers. What has emerged in recent years is two Appalachias, a new Appalachia concentrated around these growth centers 
and populated by a people who have the resources and the skills to survive in the new post-industrial age. This Appalachia looks much like the rest of America. But there is also an older Appalachia sequestered in the old coal camps and agricultural communities and, the populated, and populated by people who are older, less healthy, more dependent, and who lack the education, the skills, and the access to jobs necessary to succeed in the 21st century. The problems of the old Appalachia survive in these rural places in poor transportation, poor housing, poor water, poor government services, inadequate education, and a host of other challenges keep them there. We have moved our schools out of rural communities and into the growth centers. And in the process, we have made it even more difficult for poor children from the more remote parts of the county to succeed. We have done the same thing with healthcare, jobs, and our major social institutions. We have created uneven ground throughout the mountains where some people win and others lose because of our cultural priorities and because of our public decisions about growth and development. While today some areas of Appalachia look much like the rest of America as a result of these changes, we still have the highest poverty rates in the nation, the highest rates of heart disease, diabetes, work disability, certain forms of cancer. We have the lowest percentage of adults with a college education, among the highest rates of drug abuse in the country, and the persistent out-migration of our most talented youth. But the stereotypes persist. We continue to blame poor people for their own condition and to distance ourselves from any responsibility for the insecurities and uncertainties and the lack of opportunities that produce those conditions. After all, we say, it's their culture that makes them this way. We can provide them with charity, but we deny them justice. It's their culture. And our stereotypes convince us of this truth. You have been listening to Ronald Eller's 2010 Arts and Science Week keynote address, Stereotypes and Inequalities, Hillbillies, Horses, and Hoops. This broadcast was produced by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. Visit us on the web at www.as.uky.edu. I'm Jameson Mundy. Thanks for listening.